If you take your Bibles and turn to uh, Nehemiah chapter 5, Nehemiah chapter 5, <clears throat> if I talk to you about high interest rates, poor crop yields, unemployment, the rising cost of just about everything that we need, you can read about that in the paper today, you can watch the news, we apply for jobs, we apply for additional jobs, we apply for college, we try to work to get ahead, and we continue to feel like we're being outpaced by everything around us. Worse yet is just trying to have enough time and then try to put enough money with enough time to start the job and start the business and start the whatever else it is that we may have in mind. It's a rare combination to be able to put enough time and money together to do the thing that we want to do. It is, in fact, necessary to consider these things in any endeavor, whether it's the trustees trying to get a bid for a job that we're trying to do on a roof or a ceiling or whatever else it may be, or trying to put a budget together in the council or trying to make ends meet at your home. We must not begin anything until we have fully considered the cost, right? Luke chapter 14. Who would begin construction of a building without first getting estimates and then checking to make sure he has enough money to pay the bills. Otherwise, he might complete only the foundation before running out of funds. And then how would everyone laugh? See that fellow over there? They would mock. He started that building and then ran out of money before it was finished. Or how about planning for retirement? He always said he would retire when he had made a million clear. And so he toiled into the dusk from day to day, from year to year. At last, he put up his ledgers and laid his stock reports aside. And when he started out to live, he found he'd already died. It's a shame sometimes how we go through life trying to put up enough to get ahead. As someone once said, if money could talk, all it would ever say to me is goodbye. You've never heard that one? You hold me in your hand and call me yours, yet may I not as well call you mine? See how easily I rule you. To gain me, you would all but die. I am invaluable as rain, essential as water. Without me, men and institutions would die, yet I do not hold the power of life for them. I am futile without your stamp of approval. I go nowhere unless you send me. I keep strange company, for me men mock, love, and scorn character. Yet I am appointed to the service of saints, to give education to the growing mind, and food to the starving bodies of the poor. My power is terrific. Handle me carefully and wisely, lest you become my servant rather than I yours, if money could talk. The management of money and ministry of our Lord is, uh, to some people, sounds like an evil distraction. To others, it sounds like a, sort of a, a dirty necessity. But ministry requires money, and perhaps more than other, any other topic, money requires careful oversight and vision to target its use. Did you know you might find something like 500 scriptures on faith, prayer, or even love. You might find hundreds more on heaven and hell, but more than any other single topic, you will find five times.
times the number of scriptures in reference to money than any other single topic. After all, it is found at the root of all evil. It challenges character. It erodes trust. It raises questions. It challenges commitment more than any other thing. And so in Nehemiah chapter 5, all of this is to be found this morning as we work our way through it. And the confidence of the people is shaken. And verse 1, there's a great cry from the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. How many of you know, and I'm on dangerous territory now, but how many of you know if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? Well, that's what's going on there as we come into verse 1. But all she wants is to take care of her children, right? She just wants to take care of her babies. Verse 2, for there were those that said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, we're going to take up corn. So we're going to go grocery shopping for them that we may eat. And live. Now you may recall when we were in chapter 4, all the guys were happy to have one set of clothes, right? They, just, they put them off for one thing, take a bath. They lived in tents. They spent their nights out under the stars. I'm sure they had a lot of stories to tell with one another as they told about the day's job and work on the wall. But now their families need more. More clothes. Better schools, better homes, better, well, you name it. And who could blame them? They just want to take care of their babies. All good things, but listen to how quickly all these good things become excuses for no longer being involved. So there's this providing, this problem of providing. You saw it there in verse 2, you're going to just feed our kids. We don't have time to work on the walls because we have to work to take care of our family. Now, the preacher can't argue with that, right? What can I say to that? You don't have the time because you've got to take care of your family. In fact, in Timothy, we're told if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an infidel, right? 1 Timothy 5.8. But there's a principle that I've got to go back to, and i just got to keep it in our minds, and we'll move on. But Matthew 6.33 tells us, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added unto you. They'll be cared for. So all the things that create the burden and worries of life to take care of your family, provide for your needs, all of these things will find their proper place if first we seek the kingdom of God. So in their sincere effort, we find a problem, though, that continues, kind of hangs over them. I call it a problem of poverty in verse Three, because their lands have been mortgaged. Some also there were that said, we've mortgaged our lands and our vineyards and our houses so that we could buy that corn. That verse 2 said, we're going to go grocery shopping, but we're going to do it with money on a credit card because of the dearth or the famine. There's a cycle that sincere people often get trapped in Whenever they are not quite sure that God can or will provide, or maybe they're just not satisfied with how God has provided, you see it there at the end of verse 3, this dearth 
or famine in the land. They've maxed out their home line of credit. And guess what? At the end of the day, the famine still remains. The real problem is that some of us don't really believe we're having a good time unless we're spending money on borrowed time, right? Something we can't really afford. When the fun is over and everything is used up and the credit remains, now you've got double trouble, right? On the one hand, it's really great if you've invested. We call it compound interest. But on the other hand, if you've borrowed, compound interest is not our friend the principle was first found being convinced that God cares for me, 1 Peter 5, 7, so that I can say I'm going to cast all of my cares upon him because I know that he cares for me. Before I go out and get a second job, before I take out a line of credit, before I put it on the credit card, I've got to be convinced that God cares for me. Well, in their own effort to provide, the problems kept compounding like having to pay the next installment on a broken down car. One of my, the late one young lady that works for me having to make a payment on a car that is in the shop because it doesn't work and you can't afford to pay it, the bill to get it fixed and it just compounds from there. Well, the problem, this compounding pressure that builds verse 4, there were also that said, we have borrowed money for the king's tribute, so to pay taxes. How many of you know we've got on, uh, on each person in the United, what is it, something, last I looked at it, it was something like $175,000 in debt. It's hanging over every head. It might be up to 200000 or more by now. But hanging over every person's head is something near $200,000 in debt. That's our national debt. Well, it's compounded. They're going to pay the taxes and that upon our lands and our vineyards. We can't get out from under it. So no food. I mean, that makes sense. We want to try to find a way to provide. Secondly, no job. And then uh, no money. So they mortgage the house. Finally, they have to pay their taxes on property that the bank owns and they can't even enjoy it themselves. Their excuse was we simply don't have any money left to build the wall, Nehemiah. I often counsel young couples when they're talking about marriage not to fall into the trap of the two-income family. There's, there's nothing wrong with everybody working. That's, that's fine. But the trap is we build our life based upon two incomes, and then we start having kids, and we got to have a hard conversation. Because now... We're saying, who's staying home to take care of the I remember when my wife and I started our, the daycare down there in Marcus Hook, and you have to go through, like, the families have to submit their incomes and all of that. And you begin to realize that mommies, oftentimes the mommy, mommies are working as much time as it would take to keep their baby in this daycare, and they're spending most of it on the child care and no longer able to enjoy taking care of the child, enjoying the family. No money left. There's a simple twofold principle in Luke chapter 20, and it just, it's, you know it. If it belongs to Caesar, set it aside because you know you're going to have to pay your taxes, right? So set aside the taxes, you're, or you're going to go to jail, right? 
But with that, there's also another principle that comes along, and we don't take it as serious, and I, I, I get it, but he also says, set aside that which belongs to God. Set aside your taxes and set aside your, ta- your, your tithes. If you don't set aside your taxes, you're going you're gonna to pay for it. And if you don't set aside your tithes, you're going to borrow from it and you're going to miss God's blessings. Just as much as, as sure as you would be penalized for not paying your taxes, you're going to be penalized for not giving something to the Lord, having the sense of something being paid to the Lord, whether it's the government borrowing from your Social Security or you borrowing from your tithe, a day of reckoning is coming. I like this saying, a man's riches consist not in the greatness of his wealth, but in the fewness of his wants. Now you can think that through a lot of different ways, but sometimes it's our wants that need to change. We think it's a need, but it might just be that it's a want that's gotten out of control. Have you ever felt the pressure of trying to keep up with everybody else? Maybe you don't know how far in debt everybody else is. If you give in, you'll soon find yourself in quite a predicament, verse 5. Yet now our flesh, our families, our kids, our children is like the flesh of our brethren, the unsaved, outside, right? Our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons, our daughters. You've heard the politicians talk about it. We've mortgaged our futures, right? And become the servants. Some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them. I can't get out from under this obligation. For other men have our lands and our vineyards. So in an effort to provide for their children, remember what all started, it's legitimate, trying to just take care of our babies and try to find some advantage in this world, our children have become just like their children. Our debt has been passed on to our children. Our children have started out in marriage with greater debt than we could have ever imagined. We have no ability to help them because... Everything we have is mortgaged. Now, you might find it easy to blame the government for the debt that they placed upon everybody in this room. But who are you going to blame one day when you look around and you ask, where are our children? Where are our families? It may just be that we, in our lifestyle, have taught them to live well beyond their means. And they've become just like the world in the process. It's quite a predicament. After all, what can money really buy? It can buy a bed, but you know it can't buy sleep. It can buy books, but not brains. It can buy food, but not an appetite. Finery, but not beauty. A house, but not a home. Medicine, but not health. Luxury, but not culture. Amusement, but not happiness. A crucifix, but not a savior. A church pew, but not heaven. Well, the most often used excuse for not serving the Lord has something to do with money. After all, it is the root of all trouble, 1 Timothy 6. Their excuses likely sound more familiar than you might want to admit. So what did Nehemiah suggest? We see him expressing himself in verse 6. 
I was pretty angry about it all when I heard these cries. And so I counseled within myself. Now, this is different because in the past, you know, when he was asked a question, we always found him going in prayer. Now it's just a very practical thing. I'm going to reason within myself, how am I going to respond? And I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and I said unto them, you exact usury. See, we're at a point where we don't need another prayer. We know what is the response. We know where we got off track. And so you exact usury, every one of his brother, and I set a great assembly against them. And I said unto them, we, after our ability, have redeemed our brethren, the Jews, which were sold into the he- unto the heathen. And so now you're going to sell your brother. So now you're going to put the burden on them, or shall they be sold unto us? Then held they their peace, and they found nothing to answer. There's, there's no response to this. And I said, it is not good what you're doing. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? Likewise, I likewise, and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury, this, this debtedness that we put on our own people. Restore, I pray you. To them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, their houses, also a hundred part of the money and of the corn and the wine and the oil that you exact of them. Verse 12, then they said, we will restore them and will require nothing of them so that we will do as thou sayest. Then I called the priests and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. And so I shook out this lap, this, uh, this fine robe of, of this governor and he said, so God shall shake every one, every man from his house and from his labor that performeth not this promise. Even thus be he shaken out and emptied. And all the congregations said, amen. And they praised the Lord and the people did according to this promise. First of all, you see the remorse there in verse 6. The word, he, he, I don't know how your text may read, but angry, it's, it's not like he's uh, vengeful with that kind of, it's a remorse. It's the feeling you get when uh, you have more month than money. I don't know, you know what I'm saying by that? You know, you have at the end of the month and you cry, where did all the money go? That's, that's the remorse that he feels. The reasons now, verse 7, 8, 9, the law permitted uh, uh, in the service, the payment of debt. Uh, you could offer service. It, we would call it slavery. It's a little, uh, that term is kind of misused sometimes. But, you know, you exchange. I mean, you get up, you go punch a clock. You know, it's, it's just exchanging your time for money. It's, it's that kind of sense. Everyone in his uh, audience, and I would assume here this morning, have made purchases on terms that they thought they could afford. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but we, we more often than not only talk about the monthly payment. We don't talk about the actual cost of a thing, uh, what it costs. Uh, I'll, by the way, uh, I, this will sound a little harsh. <laughs> I will never pray for God to give you a job. So don't come to me and ask and say, preacher, pray God will give me a job. No, I'll pray that God will provide your needs. Because here's what happens, and it happened to me in my first little church, and, and I prayed for this guy to get a job. And I said, oh, dear Jesus, would you, would you provide a job for this man just trying to provide for his babies, trying to be a good father? And so he took the job. And the first cost of that job was 
Preacher, I'm sorry, I can't come on Sundays anymore. My job requires that I be there. I I don't know. Is that the best God has to offer? I I don't know. And, And I don't want to be this man's judge or yours. But when you consider the true cost of a thing, what are you giving in exchange for the enjoyment that you're seeking? Well, for this reason, he expresses a need to restore, you know, get things back in order. Verse 10, 11, 12, all the way to verse 13. Nehemiah said in verse 10, he could have made himself a burden on the people because he, remember, he's the governor. So he's the guy that's come in. He's in charge. He's got the authority of the king behind him. So he comes in, but he says, I'm going to, I'm going to not take the salary and will take less benefits. And based upon his sacrifice, he caused them to restore what they had taken. Verse 11 Verse 12, the religious leaders were also being asked to make a sacrifice for a greater cause. And by verse 13, he calls for everyone to commit to this. And they all said, amen. They want to get on board. They want to get things back in order. Nehemiah shakes out this long robe that he's wearing. And he says, this is what God will do to everyone who gives his work a bad name. The next time you start saying things like, we can't do the work. Because we gotta, we gotta, you know, we gotta get our job. We gotta do these things. I like what J. Vernon McGee says about verse thirteen: One skunk in a field of cats will give them all a bad name. And Nehemiah says, "You're going to give us all a bad name if just a few of you start saying, I'm not sure God can provide, so I'm going to go back to work. I'm going to stop the work on the wall.' I don't think the church is doing itself any favor." I don't think we as individuals are enhancing our testimony when we choose to live like the rest of the world. Because you have a big house, that doesn't tell me anything about your testimony. Because you got a second car, because you got a fancy whatever. I don't think the church is doing itself any favor either to act like the rest of the world. And then we're unable to give to the Lord because we're just too busy or we're just too far in debt. So what can we learn from this example in these trying times? First of all, notice how he handles the privilege in verse 14. Chapter 5, verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor, remember he's got the king's authority in this land of Judah from the 20th year even unto the, uh, the 2 and, and 30th year of Artaxerxes the king. That is 12 years. So all 12 years, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor. I could have demanded this of you. But I'm not going to do that because we've got too much to worry about. My salary is not the issue. What I'm supposed to receive is the king's sort of governor. I'm not going to take that. As the saying goes, with privilege comes responsibility, right? There are times when leaders have to make the most sacrifice as the example for others to follow. This can apply to me as your pastor. I could give you stories. I'm not going to do that from my past. Uh, you, you guys take good care of me. That's not the issue. But in my past, I could tell you stories. Sometimes uh, we who are elders and deacons, uh, you who are parents, uh, some person who's considered to be the boss at work, those in leadership must always be the first to respond. That, I can tell you, has always been my my response, if I'm ever calling on you to support something, I guarantee, I guarantee that I've already given to that. I'm not going to ask you to do something that I have not already sacrificed to give something myself. Then notice how he handles the policies to be made 
in verse 15. But the former governors that had been before me were chargeable unto the people. So you're, you're still supporting them and had taken of bread of them and wine beside 40 shekels of silver and taxes. Yea, even their servants bear rule over the people. But so did not I because of the fear of God. It was a common practice for every other governor before him to receive certain benefits of the people, but Nehemiah refused. Why? Because at the end of verse 15, because of the fear of God. He wanted to make sure he was a testimony, an example, and could declare and say to you, we must depend upon the Lord. Whenever we're not quite sure that God is in control, we try to take control of the circumstance. And when we try to take control of the circumstance, we will most always, almost always, make bad decisions based upon things like affordability. Or even worse yet, we start making church policies. And the church ends up with what we might call legalism, and that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is when we become beholden to the government because we make decisions that are based upon financial matters. My friends, I'm telling you, that's when you will always, always, whether it's you in your life, we in our church, you'll always get off track. With all the control Nehemiah had, he could have greatly profited, but notice how he handles the project. Verse 16, yea, also I continued in the work on the wall, and we didn't buy any land. Uh, I, I know, uh, in my history, and I think you may still, you know, like a church manse, you know what I'm talking about, a church parsonage, you ever heard of that sort of thing? It's a way for the church to keep the preacher as poor as possible. You ever, you've never heard of a church, no? You don't pay the preacher, instead we say, we're going to give you a house to live in. So he doesn't get any of the financial, well anyway, so that's what verse 16 is talking about. Neither, we didn't buy any land, and all my servants were gathered uh, thither unto work, unto the work. So we're not going to we're not going to obligate ourselves to the things of this world, so that we can stay obligated to the things of the Lord. From making money to great swaths of land, Nehemiah could have gained quite a fortune as he was heading up this project. In the history of the church, I'm so, certain it's not uh, it's not against pastors owning their own home. I don't, I don't think that's a I don't think that's a, a, a mandate that preacher can't own his own home. Thank you, I do. Well, the government does, but, or the bank does. But you, you get my point. But here's, here's the problem, and I've known it to be true. My, my dad used to say a lot of preachers stayed around too long. And you know why they do that sometimes? Because they've got a home. And they've laid down roots. Now, you're going to say there's nothing wrong with that. You're right, there's nothing wrong with that. But what if, a, what if the Lord called you today? Now, this is outside of your scope of thinking. You didn't come to church thinking this today. But what if the Lord called you today to be a missionary? Well, but I've got this, and, and I've, I've got to take care of, and that's the, that's the sense of it. That's why Nehemiah is saying, I didn't do any of that. Because I want to make sure that I stayed focused on the task to which God calls me. Just be careful about how you obligate yourself to the stuff of this world. 
And then you turn to the preacher and the church and to the Lord himself and you say, sorry, Lord, I, I just can't do that. It's because you've become so obligated to stuff that on face value, it's nothing wrong with it. But just be careful about what you're trading in for it. It's not just your money. It's your time. It's your focus. It's your attention. With all the control Nehemiah had, he could have greatly profited. But instead, he says, no, I'm not going to do that. Nehemiah and all of his servants were focused on one thing, and that's the project to which God had called them. And when the man of God is able to give himself fully to the work of God, he's better able to handle all the people and the circumstances. Verse 17, moreover, there were at my table. Did you know hospitality is a great, great characteristic of a person of God, a person that's godly? Hospitality. I've never, I seldom know a wealthy person like this. Exponentially, the more people have, the less they give. I just find that to be true. So verse, there were at my table 150 Jews and rulers beside those that came unto us. This is all out of his own pocket. And from the heathen were about us. Now that which was prepared for me daily was, <laughs> was an ox, six choice sheep, Fowls were prepared for me, and once in ten days, store of all sorts of wine. Yet for all this required not I the bread of the governor. So I didn't take a salary from anyone because the bondage was heavy upon the people. He knew it was just too much to ask of the people. The city is in ruin. Think upon me, my God, for good. This is a great, if you can pray this prayer, Think about it. Think about what this is implying. Think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. The sacrifices you've made, the things that you've done that nobody else will know about. You've given of your time. You've given of your ability. You've given your ties. You've given additional gifts. You've given uh, uh, all sorts of things that nobody will ever know about. Think about, think, Lord, upon me according to what I have done. Can you pray that prayer? More than 150 people sat around his dinner table. Few people that have more give more. And notice that in an effort to lighten the load, verse 18, he said, I did all of this at my own expense, knowing that God will care for his need and reward him in time. He left it all to the Lord. It won't be long after this work is done that Nehemiah will be quickly forgotten. Now, in the history books we we remember nehemiah but in the immediate history in the immediate circumstances of judah nehemiah is quickly forgotten everything that he's been through but the lord will repay and remember every sacrifice he's made god remembers your good deeds and i'm really glad about this i'm really glad that god does not remember all my sin he forgives me right he forgives me the sins that I confess. He's not, he's not going to make a list of all my sins that I have confessed before him. But he's going to have a list of any good that I've ever done, any sacrifice I've ever made, any time I ever went out of my way, any time I ever gave anything in the name of the... He's not going to remember my sin, but he'll remember so much as a cup of cold water given in his name. He'll remember that. What will you be remembered for? Handle wisely the stuff of this life, or it may be the only reward you will ever receive. 
In the words of an old southern gospel song, you don't have nothing if you don't have Jesus. He means more than all this world to me. He is the joy of my salvation. He gave his life that you and I might live. I know you're busy. And your reasons for your busyness are all very legitimate. But the real cost of a thing is measured not in what you have, but in what you have to give up to gain.